I have sort of a shocking statement to give to you as we start today, and that is that um, you know you might want to cover you know Levi and Owens and Anna's ears. Ella is it's okay. She's uh, kids are kind of dumb. I don't know. I don't know if you're aware of this. I mean, they're cute. They're cute. Uh, they are fun most of the time. But let's just face it, like, they're not all there. And it's not totally their fault, these tiny humans that uh, we orbit around all the time. Uh, there's a lot of things they don't know. I know that I've shared this example uh, with you before, but it's the one that always sticks out in my mind uh, when I think about this. When kids are really young and they're learning how to eat, uh, they, don't, they literally do not know that they can move the spoon that's in their hand to their mouth. This was at least true with my children. <laughs> They're gifted, though. Um, they, they didn't know that they could move the spoon to their mouth, so instead, they would move their mouth to the spoon. So they'd hold the food on the spoon, and then they'd go like this. And their hand would sort of steadily move away <laughs> as their mouth was moving toward the spoon, and so, you know, you're sitting there, and, and of course, you know, you, you mock them endlessly because they can't understand you. And then you help them move the spoon to their mouth. They don't realize how easy it is to do that one simple thing. And you have the opportunity as an adult to show them that their arm is, in fact, a transportation device that can magically transport the spoon to their mouth. But you have to work with them on it, right? You have to sort of help them get the, the handle of, because like I said, they're not that bright. So they start moving the spoon to their mouth and they're like, in their, like they miss, they're like put, trying to put the food in their chin or in their nose. And again, you mock them relentlessly, but then you also help them get the food into their mouths. As adults, uh, part of our job is to teach kids to do things the right way. For example, uh, you could hand a five-year-old kid a broom, um, but can you expect that five-year-old kid to know what to do with the broom? I mean, they'll hit their brother, uh, you know, they'll use it to try to brush your hair, like there's all sorts of things they could do with a broom, um, but they don't know what to do with it even though they will pretend that they do know. So someone has to teach them how to do it. Like, there actually is a way to effectively sweep the floor. But someone has to teach kids how to do that. Now, I want to just say to you this morning that as spiritual adults, we are not so different. We are not so different from those kids. So I wrote a parable for us this morning to illustrate, it's my first go at writing a parable, to illustrate sort of how we are. I can remember uh, raking leaves when I was a kid. I had to do it uh, just the way my dad wanted me to, and he had showed me how to rake properly. And my job then was uh, not just to rake, because anyone could get out there and rake leaves, but to do it the correct way. 
I would spend hours sometimes raking in a complicated pattern, trying to get every single leaf into its respective pile and going back to catch any stragglers that might have fallen behind. My dad would sometimes come out as the sun was setting <laughs> in beautiful Fresno and tell me to quit. He would say I had done enough, that it was getting dark, but I would ignore him, perfecting my craft, leaving no leaf behind. And let me tell you something, over a few months of intensive training, I knew how to rake leaves. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes neighbors would come by and ask me to rake their leaves. And they would sit out in lawn chairs, drinking lemonade, watching me rake leaves, marveling to one another over my prodigious skill. <laughs> Word got out about how good I was, and the local news came out because it's Fresno, and what else is there to talk about? <laughs> the title of the news story was The Boy Who Raked. It was later turned into a gripping miniseries that aired on the local network. Ricky Schroeder played the part of me, if you were wondering. <laughs> Sometimes I would walk around the neighborhood and I would watch other kids rake leaves, if that's what you can even call it. I would stand on the street watching them rake, shaking my head and making lots of weird grunts and uggs. Sometimes I would step in to show them what they were doing wrong, telling them that they obviously didn't come from a home that loved them because they couldn't even rake leaves properly. I heard my mom talking on the phone to some other kid's mom. I'm sure that she was calling to thank me for the way that I had helped her kids learn how to rake. Uh, I distinctly heard, I'll tell him, later followed by, I'm sure it won't happen again. <laughs> and I knew that this poor mom had called to compliment me on how well I had done. And my mom, bless her heart, had assured this other mom that her kids would never rake leaves so poorly again. I decided though in that moment, as we're taking calls from the neighborhood, that I could not leave things this way. I needed to make a difference in this world and I was gonna do it one rake at a time. I created a flyer with construction paper and markers for a class I was going to teach in the neighborhood. It was called The Way of the Rake. I distributed the flyers throughout the neighborhood, and for $2, anyone, young or old, could come and learn the art of raking from me. I eagerly anticipated that Saturday, and when it finally came, I was alive at the crack of dawn eager with anticipation for what was going to come. I had three outfits laid out. Um, one was kind of like, you know, dirty worker. Uh, one was just, I'm a normal kid. And the other one was uh, a new uh, sweatshirt, jeans, and, and tennis shoes, as professional as I could get at the time. And I decided to go professional because I wanted them to understand that I was a professional in raking leaves. And then I, I found like the beautiful thought, which I hadn't even considered when I picked out that outfit, and it came to me like a ray of sunshine. I realized that I was going to teach 
people how to rake so efficiently and well that even their clothes wouldn't get dirty. And at that moment, I realized I have a true gift to give to the world. I got all of my rakes out in the yard. I had different size rakes for different areas and leaves. I mean, after all, an artist has to have his brushes. I sat down on the porch and waited. And I waited. And I waited. And no one came. There must be a lot of traffic, I thought to myself, as I looked at my empty street. But I knew that someone was going to show up. But 10 minutes passed, 15 minutes passed, nobody showed up. So I I ran back inside and I checked the flyer because maybe I'd put the wrong date, but the date was correct. The time was correct. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I went back outside, sure that someone would be there at this point, and still no one was there. Then I figured out it was wrong. People went to the wrong house. That's what it was. So I decided to walk up the street and see where everyone was. But I went up two, three, four houses, and no one really even looked at me. And no one was coming toward my house, so I went the other direction. And I started walking the other way, thinking, well, they're probably all on that side of my house. And as I was walking the other way, I heard sort of a curious Um, like yelling and whooping coming from the end of the street. And I I walked down there to see what was going on, curious, and I saw that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Williams, who lived in the house on the corner and were known in the neighborhood for having the largest tree in their front yard in the whole neighborhood. They were out front, and they were surrounded by a bunch of neighborhood kids. They all had rakes, But let me tell you something. They were not properly trained. (laughs) They were raking every which way. It was chaos. By some miracle, they got all the leaves into one giant pile, which is a big mistake. I mean, you make smaller piles. They're easier to manage. Obviously, no one had ever told them this. And they had left so many leaves behind. Like, there were still leaves everywhere. Like, how can you have such a big pile of leaves and still have so many leaves out in the yard? Do you even know what the point of raking is? Which I realized at that point, too, I was going to have to give them the philosophy of raking because they did not understand. But what happened next shook me to my core. They started jumping in the leaves. I don't know why you're laughing. It was horrifying. And something inside of me died in that moment. It was awful. It was the opposite of raking. And with every jump, they were spreading the leaves back out. It was the, you're not supposed to do that. Mrs. Williams saw me and she waved me over. A couple of friends saw me and started calling my name. But I stood resolutely my arms crossed over my chest, making sure that my face told them I knew what they were doing was wrong. I mean, sure. I went back under the cover of night, and they had put all of the leaves in the waistband, but there were still leaves on the grass. 
had they even accomplished anything at all. I went home and I told my dad all I had seen over a strong glass of chocolate milk. And he looked at me for a few moments quiet. And then I saw sadness in his face. And he said two words, oh son, and he wrapped me in his arms. Let's recap what we saw last week at the beginning of Romans chapter five. Number one, there is a huge difference between knowing we are saved by faith in Jesus and trying to save ourselves through works. Number two, peace, hope, perseverance, character, hope, and overflowing love are all byproducts of our being saved through faith in Jesus. They are not available through works. Number three, we can be confident in God's saving grace through Jesus because God is more than capable and he knows what he's doing even better than we do. Number four, God chose to save us at the right time when we were helpless, not because of anything we had done to make ourselves worthy. And number five, God's grace is greater than however you want to finish that sentence. Jesus is enough for us. Now, I want to tell you that I was planning on making the last part of chapter 5 like a footnote to lead us into chapter 6. Um, and then I read the last part of chapter 5, and I realized that I could not do that. And in this section of chapter 5, the last part, Paul wants to break down the relationship between God, Adam, Eve, sin, Jesus, salvation, con condemnation, all of these things. And he does it in like two paragraphs. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. The first thing that we see in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, is that sin entered the world through one man, who is Adam. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern for the one to come. That sounds really confusing. I mean, just the way it's worded uh, sounds really complicated and, and hard to grasp. But again, in this part of the passage, Paul is describing the relationship between God, Adam, and Eve, and sin. And before the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, they lived in the blessing of God's immediate presence. I like that phrasing. I didn't come up with it. A commentary came up with it, but I love that phrasing. The blessing of God's immediate presence. They lived with God. They walked with God. They spoke with God. They were 
all together in this place. And it's hard for us to imagine what this must have been like to live in the immediate presence of God. But the, the best way that I think I can describe it is that there were, there were no barriers between God and his creation. It's, it's startling <laughs> to think about. But this came to an end when Adam and Eve were tempted and chose to disobey God. And the first basic point, I know there's a lot of words here and a lot of description, but the basic point that Paul wants to make is that Adam introduced sin to the world. And when sin was introduced to the world, death came with it. Because death is the natural consequence of sin. And when Paul says death came with it, he means two different things. Um, On one hand, the death was physical. While Adam and Eve did not die physically for a number of years, the seeds of death were, were planted at the moment of disobedience, so death was coming for them, whereas before, it doesn't seem to be the case. But more importantly, they died spiritually. Spiritual death is a separation between God. Where there was nothing between them and God, now there is something, something big. At that point in history, God and humans turn in different directions. Humans pursued the path of pride and self-indulgence. God pursued the path of redemptive love. But you don't see it all come around immediately, right? Now, because Adam was the first created person, his sin had consequences for all who were to be born after him. If you look at the end of that again, the end of those verses, it says... um, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. So he broke the command, do not eat from this tree. But look at the last words. Who is a pattern of the one to come? He opened the floodgates for all of us to disobey God. Because he was the first created person, his sin had consequences for everyone that came after him. He introduced sin, and consequently we know that everyone after Adam sinned, right? Everyone after Adam sinned. Paul writes in other parts of Romans, or in other parts of his letters even, that that we have a sinful nature. And he's saying here that the primary cause of our sinful nature uh, awoke in Adam when he chose to sin. And the result of that sin would be the history of sinning on the part of all who enter the human race and choose to sin of their own accord. Adam doesn't make me sin, right? I I do that on my own. I don't need Adam's help to sin. So he introduces sin and after him, all of us sin. Prior to the giving of the law through Moses, though, sin was in the world. But technically, he says, it was not charged to our account as sin because there was no law to define it. Meaning, you can't break a law that doesn't exist. And God didn't give Adam and Eve commandments in the garden, right? They had violated their trust with God. Death had entered the picture They continued to make wrong choices, but they were cast out into the world. There was now separation between them and God. So death, the consequence of sin, was in effect from Adam until Moses, who received the law, 
even though for those who did not break a specific commandment like Adam did. The point is, all of that, which I think I made more confusing, is through Adam, sin came into the world, and it never left. And with sin came death. Number two, the gift of grace is far greater than the penalty of sin. Now, consider all we just talked about. It's kind of a big deal. Sin and death come into the world, and people keep sinning. And it's irreversible, this process that started with Adam's sin. But the gift of grace is greater than the penalty of our sin. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Okay, there's an irreversible problem. Sin is in the world, death comes with it. But God's act of grace through Jesus, through one man, is greater than the offense of Adam and what he introduced to the world. Yes, Adam's one sin led to the ultimate death of the entire human race, which is pretty bad. Uh, but what should be said about the gift of God given freely in Jesus when compared to that? Do the two even compare? Does what the one man Jesus did, does it even compare to what the one man Adam did? Are they the same thing? Do they carry the same weight? And the answer is no, they don't. Think about that. Miraculously, even though Adam changed the course of humanity, what he does does not stand up to what Jesus did. How much more? Paul asks, indicates that the effect of the gift is vastly greater for all of us and one is not equal to the other. As R.H. Mounts wrote, God's grace is infinitely greater for good than Adam's sin is for evil. I'm going to read that one more time. God's grace is infinitely greater for good than Adam's sin is for evil. That's a good thing, just so you know. By one sin, death was introduced to the world. Salvation came after many trespasses and brought with it justification for everyone. Although sin extends to all who are in Adam by birth, the grace of God transforms for eternity the life and destiny of all who are in Christ through faith. In short, I'm going to give you lots of little shorts today. Man chose to rebel, and that caused consequences to come on us. But God chose to restore, and God's restoration is bigger than your rebellion. 
Amen? If one man could take humanity down, how much more can God do through his son? So the good news is that salvation overcomes. What does it overcome? All of it. Salvation overcomes all of it. Verses 18 through 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Just as condemnation spread to all through one sin, so also is divine redemption offered to all through the one man and his obedience to God. Now, Paul didn't intend to imply that the result of Christ's sacrifice is automatic justification for everyone everywhere. Because Paul has already made it clear that you are saved through what? Faith in Jesus. So, you have to believe. But do you have to be a certain kind of person with faith in Jesus in order to find salvation? Do you have to look a certain way and have faith in Jesus to find salvation? No. Jesus freely gives it to all. Through Christ, man is made right before God, and this comes through faith. As Paul said earlier in chapter 5, we can stand in confidence before God knowing that he has overcome for us. So number four, the main principles seem easy enough to understand, but the whole is complicated. If you found the other verses confusing, wait for these. Verses 20 through 21. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Important question alert. If righteousness comes by faith, and if sin can only be done through salvation in Jesus then why did God give the law in the first place? We know that the law cannot make us righteous because we can't follow it, so why does it exist at all? I mean, Paul's made that really clear. The answer is weird. The law was given so that the offense, sin, might increase. Law actually makes all the sin we were already committing worse. I mean, he's already kind of made this point, but let's make it again. Let's say that you commit a sin, because, but you don't know it's wrong. Is it still a sin? Yeah, it still is, but is your guilt the same as if you intentionally choose to break a law? I've always said um, that there's a big difference between being ignorant and being stupid. And it's okay to a degree to be ignorant. Because the definition of ignorance means what? You don't know. You don't have the knowledge. You haven't read the book. Right? Being stupid is different. Being stupid means you should know. Or you have had opportunity to know. Or you do know and you still choose to do differently. Right? So, why is the law there? The law is there to increase sin, to make our wrongdoing worse, because it tells us what's wrong, 
and challenges us to do right, but we're still going to choose wrong. And now, every time we choose wrong, we've been told it's wrong, which means we are intentionally sinning against God when we break the law. Make sense? Knowledge of the law increases our sin because it shows us what is wrong. Therefore, the law was never intended to provide salvation for God's people. Here's what's crazy. You know what it was intended for? To make us realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. If, if you are left a list of things to do, and success means completing all of these things, and let's say you get four out of seven, and those four are iffy. You didn't do the best job. Did you succeed? What, what if you got five out of seven? Or, or what if you got six out of seven? That's pretty good, right? Did you succeed if you got six out of seven? No. Why? Because you were told to do something, and you were instructed in how to do it, and you did not do it. So let's look back just for a second on what Paul said earlier in chapter 5. At just the right time, Jesus Christ died for us. Now, we can look at that and we can sort of question like, well, what does that mean? And why was, you know, 33 BC the right time? We're looking at it the wrong way because Paul's not talking about a time in history, right? He's not talking about a year. What he's talking about is what God, the point that God needed man to reach. And what point did God need man to reach before he could send Jesus? The point where we would know we needed a Savior? The point where we were helpless, when we were away from God, and we could recognize that we were away from God. And how long did it take us to get there? A real long time, right? Because man had tried to follow the law, had changed the law, had adapted the law, had made God in their own image. But the law was never intended to provide salvation, but to convince us over time that we needed a Savior. The law was created to help us understand the difference between God and us. And to help us realize that we need Jesus. And here's what's crazy about it. Did everyone realize they needed Jesus? Is everybody in the world now a Christian? No. It's a lesson we're still learning. We still argue about God and who he is and what he's like and what he can or cannot be. But Paul says... All of these things that came before Jesus were trying to get humanity to the point where we could finally see Jesus for who he is and what he is. We had to reach a point of failure and knowledge of our failure. You know, it's not enough just to have cancer. You have to know you have cancer before you treat it, right? Right? 
You have to know it's there in order to make this happen. So Paul says, where sin increased, something amazing happened. Grace increased all the more. The gift of God became so big. You know why? Because there's so much sin in the world. In our lives, multiplied by billions. It's all there. And God, in his great goodness, gave us something bigger than all of that. Because those saved by grace through faith are freely and fully justified, having been forgiven, counted righteous, and reconciled to God the Father. And there is no sin or no pattern of sin or no continued sin that can overcome God's abundant grace in your life. As uh, Jared Wilson wrote, God is more ready to forgive than we are to sin. And we're pretty ready. Why is all of this important? Well, these passages provide the opportunity to make clear the larger dimensions of what sin and salvation mean in our lives. It changes how we look at ourselves and how we interact with our salvation. Because I want you to understand something kind of weird. Paul wants you to feel helpless, but he doesn't want you to feel guilty. That's kind of opposite, isn't it, of what we learn? I mean, guilt is a part of it, right? You sin, you feel guilty. You confess your sin, and God... Paul wants you to be convicted that you do sin and you do all these things, and he wants you to be convicted that you are utterly helpless without Jesus, but he doesn't want you to feel bad about it. Because it's the way it is. Not saying that you shouldn't fight against sin in your life. That's not what he means. But what he means is, fight away, but you are still going to fall short. Period. Like, there's no way around that you are still going to fall short. So, so feeling guilty is not what you need. The issue that you need to deal with is not your constant failure, but that you are caught in the effects of a rebellion against God, which you cannot overcome on your own. You can't. And only if we look at ourselves in the light of the grace that God has given us can we face the reality and reality is something we desperately need. Because no matter how much we talk about grace, we believe on some level that we need to try harder. Trying harder only produces more sin. And different kinds of sin. Acceptance of our sinful state leads us to the need to repent of the feeling that by trying harder, we can somehow affect our salvation with God. That's a sin. There will always be more leaves to rake. No matter how perfectly or imperfectly you do it. But there are times when we think we can do it perfectly. Or we believe that we do it better than others. And sometimes we let those others know about it via lecture or flyer or unattended class. And all of that is simply 
another form of the temptation to be like God, which was the downfall of Adam and Eve when they committed the first sin. It's the same story, different verse. (laughs) To realize finally that we cannot deliver ourselves no matter how sorry we may feel for past wrongs or how hard we may try to overcome them in the future gives us freedom in Jesus Christ. You see that? It gives us freedom in Jesus Christ to fall completely into the overwhelming grace of God. Grace throws the light that lets us see ourselves for what we are, incurably prone to the idolatry of regarding ourselves rather than God as the final hope for our redemption. It is in that way that grace leads us to the repentance that matters, not for, well, God, I did this wrong or I did that wrong, but for placing our trust in ourselves and not him. The grace leads us change that and to put our trust in God and not ourselves. I mean, church, at some point we have to let God be God, right? And quit trying to take responsibility for our salvation or other salvation on ourselves. Because we are children of Adam. We are creatures of sin. And so often in church history, that has been used as a weapon against you and against others. But let Paul for this moment speak to you and say, you're a a child of sin, you are children of sin, because that's how it is. But praise God that you have a loving, gracious God who sent his son to die for you. And the gift of Jesus is bigger than your sin. The gift of Jesus is bigger than your sin. It always has been. And it always will be. And when your life comes to an end, what is going to matter is not all of the good things you did or all of the bad things you did. What is going to matter is that you had faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And He saves you. Hallelujah. So let's put that issue to rest for a while, okay? I think we covered it pretty thoroughly. We are ready to be people of grace. So let's recap. Number one, through Adam, sin came into the world and it hasn't left. With sin came death. Number two, man chose to rebel, God chose to restore. And God's gift of restoration is far greater than man's sin. Number three, it is through faith in Jesus that this restoration comes to be. And number four, law rules, let's call it two, increases sin. Grace overcomes sin, always. Church, grace overcomes sin, always. Amen? Let's take communion.